2 Kings chapter 4, there's a beautiful story here uh, in these Hebrew scriptures, this amazing passage in 2 Kings. And if you would stand to honor the reading of God's word, if you're able to do so, we'd appreciate it. Listen to this beautiful story, 2 Kings 4, verse 1. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditors coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except, shout except, a small jar of olive oil. Elijah said, okay, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars in each, and as each is filled, put it to the side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When they were all full, she said to her son, bring me one more. But the reply was, there is not another one left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what's left. Come on, shout, live on what's left. All right, please be seated. It's helpful to remember at this moment that the Christian movement was born out of an event. Jesus, who declared he was the Son of God, proved that he was who he said he was when he died on Calvary's cross. But the first day of the week, Sunday morning, he got up from the dead. And after many people had seen him, he shows up, according to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 16, to his followers, and he says to them, go into all the world and preach the good news. Everybody shout good news. The good news is that, that the, because he lives, it means that life will have ultimate victory over death, that love will ultimately be victorious over hatred, that light will ultimately win over Somebody shout good news. Now, one of the early uh, followers of Jesus, one of the early church fathers, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, is reported to have said this. Preach Jesus. And when necessary, use words. This is how Francis lived. As a matter of fact, his life was known for such giving and serving and loving, that it became such a powerful example that ultimately the founders of the city of San Francisco named San Francisco for this follower of Jesus. The point being, the best way for you and I to go and proclaim that life has radically changed because of Jesus' resurrection is for us to go live like Jesus. Come on, everybody shout, live like Jesus. And that's what we've been teaching for the last three, year, three weeks, and that's what we've been trying to prepare ourselves to do together in this outreach campaign. So two weeks ago, we said, go and 
be a picture of God's extravagant love in the world. Last week, the Honorable uh, Brown, Judge Brown told us to go and be servants. And this week, uh, I'm saying to you that if you want to be more like Jesus, you should go to be generous. Now, it is Jesus who teaches us about this. It was Jesus who said, uh, his disciple who said that uh, if you don't love others, then you don't know God because God is love. It is Jesus who says that when it comes to power and position, you don't handle it like unbelievers, but, but, but let the greatest among you be a servant and let he or she who would be uh, first be the slave of all, for the Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve. He's saying, follow my example. I gave my life as a ransom for all. It is Jesus who teaches his disciples, give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Everybody shout, Give. When he talks about giving, he's not just talking about an act of giving. It's good for us to have, you know, 39.95, that's what we're about to do. That's an act of giving. That's important because it's a step towards becoming generous. But there's a difference between an act of giving and being generous. To say that I'm generous is to declare uh, that that's my attitude. It is to declare, it is the disposition of my heart. It is to declare that's my lifestyle. As a matter of fact... The generous person is the person who, when she or he dies and people are talking about him, one of the things they will say about you is that she was what? Lifestyle. Now, if Jesus is teaching us to be generous, whatever he asks us to do is always not just good for the world, it's good for us. Here's what social scientists have discovered from Harvard and Yale and Princeton. They've studied this notion of generosity. Here's what they said. They said that the average person who's generous as a lifestyle, they said at the end of the day, they tend to be happier, healthier, more hopeful, and more purpose-minded in the world. Tell the person next to you, generosity is good for you. Tell them. It's good for you. So if it's so good for me, why is it so hard? What's the barriers? Well, the first barrier is, is this self-centeredness. And the culture in which we live shape us into being self-centered. It's a me-first culture. Me, mine, myself, I, me first. Self-centered culture. Second is this notion of cynicism. We don't want to be taken advantage of. We want a great return for whatever investment we make. And this the basic belief that even though God is inviting us to give, at the end of the day, we don't believe God has our back. Can you say cynicism? That's what we hear in this text. This woman, verse 1, says that she's the wife of one of the prophets who's a part of Elisha's company. She came I want you to listen for the cynicism in her pain. She says, my husband, your servant is dead. And you know how he revered God. 
Well, let me tell you where that got us. She says, at this very moment, his creditor is coming to take my two sons as slaves for the debt. Now, the rabbis who study this text suggest in their teaching that at the end of the day, she probably was the wife of a fellow by the name of Obadiah, 1 King chapter 18, verse 4. And Obadiah is noted for when Jezebel was killing prophets, Obadiah took a hundred of them, put 50 in one cave, 50 in another cave, and the text says that he supplied them with food and water. And the suggestion is he used his resources, his generosity, and when he ran out of generosity, he had to borrow some to make sure he could keep them alive. And now his wife shows up and says, look, he did all this for God. Now look at us. Does God have my back? We know a little something about that. My wife and I, I told you all that a number of years ago when I was pastor at Roxbury Presbyterian Church, God called us into a capital campaign that ultimately miraculously raised $3.3 million that changed not only the building but the entire community. And as God got ready to shape that campaign, I sensed him saying to me, Rhonda was just a few months from graduating, we're about to buy a home, and I sensed him saying to me, don't buy the home, but figure out what the monthly mortgage is going to be. Then multiply that mortgage by 12, then multiply that by 3. Take that big number, say big number, pledge it to the church. Don't buy the house, take care of the church first. I shared that with my wife. She's here today to share with you what her response was. Good morning, everyone. <sighs> okay. Um, you know, at the time that Herman came to me and told me that the Lord had revealed to him that the church, in order for this great work to be done, I mean, imagine 150 lower to middle income people being able to raise $3.3 million in three years seemed completely impossible. But in order for us to do that as a body, that we as the pastor and wife would have to take a really big step, sacrificial step forward. And I'm going to just be honest with you that when he came to me with this idea, I was livid <laughs> because I had worked so hard to finish medical school and so many hours of studying and preparing and passing tests and then 36 hours sleep, uh, 36 hour shifts without sleep. And it was a 10-year plan of working really hard and not having a home during that time. And I was six months from finishing my residency and getting a real job that makes real money. And I had already picked out a home in this up-and-coming area in Boston. And I was just fantasizing about, I can have a pet. I don't have to ask a landlord. 
You know, I can have any color drapes I want. I can paint the walls any color. I was so excited. And it was with six months left that your pastor <laughs> came to me and asked for me to give up my dream for three years. And I don't know how you all would have responded to that, but this was so hard for me. This was so painful for me. And I just felt like it was so audacious to even ask me to do this. <laughs> you see, because as it was, we were already giving 12% of our income. We do follow the biblical um, precept of giving tithes, which is 10%, and an offering, which we just came up with 2%. And so we already gave 12%. And I thought, that's pretty good already. He says, no, in addition to that 12%, we want to take three years worth of mortgage, which I had already worked out what it would be, and give that as a pledge to the church. So you guys have heard my testimonies before about my real uh, commitment of being obedient. Scripture says that God loves a cheerful giver. And I'm going to be honest, I was not a cheerful giver. I, I'm working on the cheerful. God is working on the cheerful for me, but I was an obedient giver. So we did make the pledge. We did put off the three years to buy a home. And in order to keep myself accountable, I decided I would not be writing those checks every two weeks. I decided what I would do is go into our checking account. At that time, it was Citizens Bank. You go in, and you can say, every two weeks, we want this amount sent to the church. We put in the address of the church. We put in capital campaign fund so that I wouldn't even have to make that decision every two weeks. Because I know how my rationalization will work. Well, this month we have this to pay, and certainly God understands, and et cetera, et cetera. So I set up a system for myself that kept me accountable. So that in year one, year two, I'm still being accountable and committed to what we had pledged. So three years go by, and miraculously, $3.3 million raised by our small church. And it was raised because people started looking and saying, you know, what do I have? I have nothing except what Obadiah's wife said. I have nothing except I do get a latte from Starbucks once a week. I have nothing except I get a mani-pedi once a month. I have nothing except I had planned to increase, um, upgrade my car from a Honda to a Mercedes. And really... Many people in our church gave what they had, the extra. And the community rallied around us because they were like, look at this small church. They're, built, they're raising this money. It all came about because God gave Herman this idea that we should have a tech center located in the basement of our church so that the kids in the neighborhood could keep up with technology. And we'd have a computer learning center in the basement of our church. But when inspectors came, they found that the foundation was not secure and it didn't meet code. And because the building was 126 years old, 
in order to bring a building like that up to code, it took $3.3 million. So that's how we got into the situation to begin with. So three years later, we had this wonderful, beautiful building. And really, that was really enough. That really should have been enough. God already did an ama amazing, miraculous thing. But I happened to go by the neighborhood, this so-called up-and-coming neighborhood in Boston, after the three years. And those who had predicted that it was the new up-and-coming part, they were wrong. At that time, it had become drug-ridden, violent, and unsafe. If we had bought that home, we would not have been able to live there. At that time, we had a son, Jonathan. He was only 10 or 12 years old. We could not have lived in that neighborhood. And so really, God saved me from making a horrible mistake. And you know, just, just when you think that God has really shown off, he shocks you. He does even more. He does that pressed down, shaking together and running over. So... When I finished medical school, I owed $160,000 in school loans. And you know that if you um, try to pay those school loans off yourself, if anybody here has had school loans before, by the time you pay it off over 20 years or 15 years, you end up paying like three or 400,000. It's double or triple what the original amount was. And so I was really thinking about, wow, you know, we're gonna have to start making these payments for this money that I took out and a very wonderful CEO of a company recognized some work that I was doing um, at the hospital. And he brought me into his office. They have never done this before and have not done this since. But he made a pledge to pay all of my student loans. Every penny of my student loans are paid. And as I was walking out the door, it was as if God in heaven winked at me. And he's, the CEO said to me, by the way, Rhonda, we are going to, because the money would come to me, it had to come to me, it couldn't go directly to the student loan company. He says, because that's going to be income for you, that amount we give you, that means you're gonna end up having to pay taxes on that. And so what we're gonna do is pay your loans and the amount of taxes that you will have to pay. And so the Lord took care of me completely and utterly. Praise the Lord. Come on, let's give God a hand and praise. That's the God we serve. That's the God we're talking about. And, and, and let me just say, my wife was very polite when she said she was livid. <laughs> I think we had been married by 13 years. I was not sure we were going to make it through that period. <laughs> but I was sure that what God had said. And Rhonda, here's what she did. She didn't say this, but she did it. She went to prayer, and uh, she came out of that prayer 
determined to be obedient. And the miracle that she described was so big. The renovation of that, of that church brought in billionaires, millionaires from all over the city, responded, and came alongside us to the Boston Globe on the front page, wrote about it. And the Herald, which is the other paper, wrote about it. Can we give God a hand, praise? All right, so say this with me. Faithful generosity is good stewardship. Faithful generosity. If you would dare to be generous, to be a part of God's work in the world, God has your back. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. So one barrier is uh, is a, a, a kind of self-centeredness. Another barrier is just cynicism, that we're going to be out there on our own, etc. And, and let me just hasten to say that while it is true that God will, he says, give and, and it will be given back to you, if your motivation for giving is so that you can get, you've missed the point. It's just simply God's way of saying, I got your back. You will never lose. So I'm freeing you up. The third reason, a barrier beyond cynicism, is this notion of limited resources. Tell the person next to you, I don't have enough to give. Tell them. That's the notion. We see it a bit in this text. Uh, verse 2, the prophet asks the woman, he says, how can I help you? And then there's a pregnant pause there, and then it's as though God drops a, something in his spirit. And then the prophet says, says uh, what do you have in your house? And notice her answer. Her answer is, uh, I have nothing there at all. Shout, nothing at all. Then she says, as though God reminds her, except, everybody shout except. Except a small jar of olive oil. Except, except. Now, the prophet knew that she was coming to him standing on a legacy of generosity. And, 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 and that, that, that if you're standing on a legacy of generosity, God always has something for you. What do you have? Shout, accept. Now, let me just take a side point here. Many of us feel like, and, and if this point doesn't apply to you, just ignore it. If this does apply to you, respond to it. Listen. Many of us feel like it's hard to live in Silicon Valley. We feel like we don't have nothing. But here's the fact. That if you make $33,000 a year or more, you're in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. And you say, well, I don't feel that way. Well, of course you don't feel that way. Uh, uh, because, because for many of us, it's our need to have that, that eliminates this notion of margin. However, America is perhaps the only country in the world. Listen to me. Now, if this doesn't apply, ignore it. If it does, respond. America is probably the only country in the world where you can roll up to a house in a low-income neighborhood and walk in the house and see a big flat screen TV. <laughs> Can you shout except? That has a cable bill attached to it, about $150 a month. Come on now. Can you say except? 
where all the kids got cell phones. Come on now. And we're not talking about Metro PCS. Come on. Can you say Excel? Look under that child's bed and there's a $200 pair, $200 pair of tennis shoes. But I don't have nothing. Shout Excel. Excel. What God is saying is some of us, we're living beyond, listen, why don't you downsize? Do you need all those premium channels? Come on, can't you downsize the basic till you get your finances together? Come on. And, 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 and listen, 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 listen. Shout downsize. Now, I went to the store. You know I love Steph Curry. I went to check out his tennis shoes. Over $200. I left them on the, on the store. Come on now. now. But some of y'all got Steph Curry shoes. Let me just tell you, if you're struggling, don't buy Steph Curry $200 shoes. He doesn't need the money. Come on now. Go to a place called Payless. Come on. Pick out a pair that looks like Steph Curry. Come on now. There's a reason why they call it Pay. Tell the person to you, he might be talking about me, but I'm not going to say anything. Tell him. <laughs> except, 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 except just a little, a little olive oil, a little olive oil. And then the prophet says, watch this. Then he says to her, all right, here's what I want you to do. Now, here's where the text get deep for me. Leave your house. Go all around the neighborhood. Verse 3 and 4. And ask. The actual Hebrew. The, the newer translation will say borrow. But the actual Hebrew. And I like this word. It says ask. Everybody say ask. I mean request. Ask of all your neighbors to give you some jobs. Now, don't ask for a few. Tell them look, look, look. I need some jobs. Whatever you have in your house. Could you let me have them? All right, there's two insights that pop here I want you to get. That generosity drives that. Here's the first insight. Some of us don't give because we've been hurt in the past. And in order to regularly open your hand, because that's what's needed, in order to open your heart, you have to expose yourself to being hurt. Again, especially if you're expecting something in return for what you give. But truly, a generous person gives without an expectation of your paying it back. But I want you, here's the insight. Watch me. So my heart is closed. Shout, heart's closed. So when my heart is closed, no love can come out. But watch this. But when my heart is closed, no love can come in. So some of you, you've got a closed heart. And you're surrounded by people trying to love you. And you're going around here talking about nobody loves me. It's not that nobody loves you. It's that your heart is so close that you cannot receive love. Did you hear Jesus says, give and it shall be what? Given, which means you've got to be in a position to receive. 
And the only way, so for you, practicing generosity will literally change your life as you open your hands regularly because the Bible says you can't serve God and money. So, and what it's really meaning is either God will be God over your life or money will be God over your life. Come on now, pick which one. And so I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to choose generosity. And so I'm going to practice, open my hands. And the more I open my hands, the more I open my heart. Watch this. And the more I open my heart, the more generous I become and the more generous I I become the more of a new person I become. Let me prove the point. I have never, ever met a generous person who's mean. I've met some wealthy people who are mean, but that's different. I've never met a generous person who's mean. I'm not saying there aren't any. I've never met one. I have never met a generous person who can't forgive. I've never met a generous person who's not at the same time a person of real grace. You know why? Because if I'm generous, my heart is open. And if my heart is open, that's the same heart that needs to be open for me to forgive. The same heart that needs to be open for me to be grace-filled. The same heart that needs to be open for me to be merciful. So here is the point. Listen to me now. If you want to be a better spouse, if you want to be a better child to your parent, if you want to be a better parent to your children, a better colleague on your job, a better boss to your employees, start practicing generosity and your life will change. All right, here's the next subtle point in this text. Watch this. this. Now, this gets really close to home for some of us. In order for that woman to be helped, she had to be honest about her needs. Leave your house, go knock on the doors, let everybody in the neighborhood know you need their jobs. Let's let everybody in the neighborhood know you have needs. Now, here's the problem. Some of us... Use giving as a pride thing. Here's how you know that you use giving as pride. You're happy to give to others, but you don't let others give back to you. And you have a real need, but you keep it secret. And what you don't realize is you're cutting off God's blessing because you're keeping it secret. This woman had to expose it. Listen, one of the women, I won't give her, I won't name her, wrote a check for $300,000 in this campaign that Rhonda was talking about. She wasn't a member of the church, didn't come regularly, but she knew us and she knew our work. And she wrote a check for $300,000. A year and a half later, she got in trouble. Real dark period in her life. She reached out to me. She needed a pastor. And I walked with her through that period. Towards the end of that period, she said to me, she says, she says, Pastor, she says, what you needed a few years ago was money. You didn't have it. I had it. I was happy to give it. She says, what I needed for the last eight months, money couldn't help. And I didn't have it. But I trusted you and I opened up to you and you had it, prayer and insight and pastoral wisdom and you've brought me out. So here, here, here's the point. Here was a wealthy millionaire woman, come on now, who had enough humility to come and say, I have a need. How many of you are missing what God wants to do in your life because you're too prideful?
to say, I have a need. Watch what happens in the text. They go gather all the jars. Remember that? Bring them to the house. They come back inside the house, and they start pouring the oil, right? Well, how did they get all those vessels that she brought into the house? Well, somebody gave it. Give, and it shall be what? And then that oil, right, it just kept growing. It kept growing. That just recognized, all it's saying, it just points to the supernatural power of God to back up his word. Come on now. That if you're willing to be, if you're standing on the legacy of generosity, if you're honest about what your own needs are, and if you've taken care of God's business, if you're invested in God's agenda, come on now. God's got your back, and there's always a supernatural part to it. Come on now. All of her loans getting paid off, plus the taxes. There's always a supernatural part to it. That when you look back you said the only explanation for this is God. Shout supernatural. In other words, if you get up in God's business, God will get up in your business. And the way you do that is learning to be generous. So let me conclude it here. Therefore, what I'm teaching simply comes down to this. Generosity is a choice. Tell the person next to you, it's a choice. And while we're practicing some steps of giving, I'm praying that you will move towards a lifestyle of generosity. Well, how do I move towards a lifestyle of generosity? I love how you ask your questions. Put the graphic up here. Here's how most people give. Most people give, they're focused on me, mine's first living. What comes in, they spend first. They figure out what they want, they buy it. Then they take a little what's left, they pay some bills, which always include taxes. And then if there's anything left, come on now, they'll put some in savings. And then if there's anything left after that, they'll give it. This, my friends, is not generosity. This is giving God your leftovers. If you want a lifestyle of generosity, you've got to follow the biblical principles. And the biblical principle says, first give. Everybody shout, give first. Come on, go to Proverbs chapter 3, and here's what he says. He says, honor God with your wealth by giving him the first fruit. They were in the agricultural context. The first fruit of your crops. You give, you give off top. Shout, give first. In 1 Corinthians, the early Christians, Paul taught the same thing in chapter 16 when he was, he was gathering money for the mission work in Jerusalem. He said to them, here's what you do. He says, on the first day of the week, you set aside a portion of your salary. You set it aside so that, so that when I come to gather, it's going to be there. Shout, give first. And then there ought to be a percentage. It's not just giving. You decide, what percentage am I going to give of my income? Really, here's the real question. What percentage am I going to live on? You decide that you pre-decide. Say pre-decide. What percentage am I going to save? Say pre-decide. What percentage am I going to give away? Say pre-decide. You heard Rhonda said that for years we've practiced tithing. That's because in Malachi chapter 3 verse 10, the Jewish principle that Christians have, have, have brought into our commitment is, is 
bring the tide into the storehouse so that there might be meat. In other words, so that the work of God can get done. And then the text says, improve me, test me. I'll show you that I'll open up the windows in heaven and pour out a blessing more than you can receive. That was Rhonda's testimony. Come on. We would have been stuck in a neighborhood, but he blessed us. Come on. I mean, all our loans was paid off more than we could receive. Uh, she, she didn't even tell you. Let me drop this in. When we found the house that we wanted, I, we needed a $100,000 down payment. Didn't have it. Fella by, uh, called me, John, his first name. Said, well, what's going on? I told him what we needed. He said, well, you think that's the house? I said, yeah, except for the 100000 <laughs> He said, don't worry about it. He said, in two days, I'll transfer the 100000 And in two days, without me signing one paper, without me asking... He transferred 100000 into our account so that we could make the down payment. Can you say press down, shaking together, running over? Supernatural. That's, that's, you release God. All right. So, 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 so Malachi says give a percentage. All right. So I argue that you ought to give 10%. That ought to be your goal that you at least start. Some of you, man, you can give so much more than 10%. You don't even, you give 10%, it doesn't even bother you. So, so you ought to be stretching beyond that. But the target ought to be for starters, 10%. But many of you, the average person gives $26 a week. So getting you to go to 10%, is not going to work. So here's what, here's what I challenge you. Go home and calculate how much do I give to the church, to the work of God, to other charities. Calculate it. And then figure out, is, is it 1%, 2%, 3%? Then decide, pre-decide. Say pre-decide on a percentage. And begin to give. And then each year, so, that's, so you give that first. You heard what Rhonda says? Hooked it up in our bank account. It, the check went out automatically. You give that first. That's priority given. You pre-decide on a percentage. That's percentage. And then each year, you bump it up a little bit. That's progressive. And God keeps stretching you. Then finally, you have, give me the graphic. So here's, 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 here's how you live. I give first, shout save second. You know, Joseph had seven years of bountifulness. Remember that, Genesis 41? He took what he needed. He saved the rest so that he had something for the lean years. So you need to be saving. Shout save second. Pay your taxes, your bills. Spend what's left. Now, somebody said, I ain't got nothing left. But you really do. See, you're going to downsize your cable. You're going to stop buying $200 pair of tennis shoes. You're going to go to Metro rather than Apple's iPhone. Come on now. You, 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 you got something left. You got something left. You got your little bit. Then check me out in a year and see what God has done to your finances and to you. Now, here's where I want to conclude. Some of you are thinking, maybe thinking, well, he's just trying to talk us into giving money to the church. All right. So if you're thinking that, I want to give you permission. You don't have to give one dime to the church, to this church. But I'm not letting you off the hook. Because if you're thinking that, that means God is nudging you. That means God is bothering you. And that means God is saying you need to give. So here's the deal. Put the next graphic up here. So you pick something else to give to. Come on, pick another church. Pick Red Cross, the United Way, Second Harvest Food, Samaritan Purse. You go do your research. The bottom line is pick an opportunity to be generous and give that check first. I've got a partner in this church who gives 50% of his income away. 
give first. And God will change your life. Can you say amen? Here's where I want to conclude. Oh, first of all, let me just say this. I'm over time, so I got to say this. To all of you who do give regularly to this church, I just want to say thank you. We're able to do all that we do because of your faithfulness. When we're about to give $40,000 away, we're going to still meet the budget. We're not even going to miss all of that more because I think we're going to give more. That's because of you. Can you give God a hand praise for you, your faithfulness? I had a friend. This is why I want to conclude it. His name is Dr. Tony Williams, the pastor of Maranatha Christian Church. It's a church that's known for its giving all over the city of San Jose, working with folk coming out of jail, getting them placed in homes and families, working with kids who need tutorial support. They send buses to pick them up, feeding the, home, uh, the hungry and clothing uh, homeless people. That's what they do all the time. It's an African-American congregation. African-Americans have population has shrunk in San Jose. Congregation has shrunk. They had a multi-million dollar loan on the building. The bank recently told them the congregation is not large enough to cover the loan, even though the congregation has never missed a payment in the last 10 years. And so they said that they had a year to go, and they were not going to renew the loan. And if they couldn't find somebody to pick up the loan, they're probably the danger of foreclosing on the building. Dr. Tony Williams called me the other day. When I was in a meeting, he couldn't get me. He said he was just going to call me, just tell me how depressed he was. He was. He had raised up a congregation. They did nothing but give. And, and now they're in this fix. In a real sense, he was asking, where is God? He said he couldn't get me, so he just started opening up his mail. And he came to an envelope. And he opened the envelope. There was a check from an anonymous giver. Their loan was a million and thirty thousand dollars. And there was a check in there for a million and fifty thousand dollars. Can you say press down, shaking together? God is faithful. They had twenty thousand. They paid off the loan. They got twenty thousand left. Come on now. And really what the prophet said to the woman, he says to Tony, and he says to us, if you will be generous, you can go live on the rest. Amen.